This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. There's a joke that goes, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. That's about the way I'm feeling right now. Several months ago, I recorded a record number of interviews within the span of several weeks in the hopes of having enough in the can so that I would always be ahead of the curve. What I didn't anticipate would be that some of those files would be corrupted and the backups of no use. On top of that, I got sick with two back-to-back illnesses, one of which robbed me of my voice for about two weeks, so now I'm behind. Luckily, I have a conversation that I recorded a while back with my friend Jeffrey Sidoris, a former guest of the show and the host of his own popular podcasts. I had intended to release this as a bonus episode to those of you who support our Patreon effort because I was thinking and still intend to change change some of the benefits and have this kind of more personal content where I have intimate conversations with people that include more of more of me. So I'm working on resolving all the technical issues with the recording system and on re-recording some of those lost interviews. It, it's going to be a little crazy, but I hope to stay on our weekly schedule. This episode is longer than normal because, as some of you may know, my conversations with Jeffrey can go pretty deep, but I hope that despite the length, you do find something of worth. Thanks again, and welcome back. Yeah, I was listening to um, your most recent upload in terms of Mm -hmm. when you solicited people to talk about their creativity and a lot of them was talking about fear. That was a big one and doesn't, I haven't even gotten through all the responses. In fact, I can't see them anymore because uh, Instagram cuts it off after 24 hours. You can't see them. And I, I was on vacation, so I couldn't get to all of them, but there were dozens of really great responses. Some I got to, and, and like I said, some I didn't, but the bulk of them were around some kind of fear. whether that's fear of not being heard or uh, feeling like a a creative fraud or running out of creative juice or or realizing that what they've been producing all this time just really isn't very good. It really isn't very compelling. It really isn't very engaging. A lot of people really worry about about playing to an audience. And I think that's, it's natural, but it's, it's a, it's a difficult situation to be in because A, audiences are fickle and B, an audience may not understand where you've come from, where you are and where you want to go. Right. Well, when I, when, when I heard that on on your podcast, I had been thinking about those on the along those lines anyway, because I've been in Mm -hmm. a, a little sort of salon with a variety of different artists. Some are musicians, photographers, painters, poets, whole variety of different different things right in, and in person or online? in person yeah. yeah 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 and then also just in terms of my teaching you know when i'm working with people who are wanting to hone their skills as photographers what was interesting about a lot of these people is that they tend to be older we have some young younger people in the salon probably in their their 30s but one of the things that seemed to be coming up though it wasn't expressly spoken about was this idea of you know, finally giving yourself permission to be creative. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the men in the group, he told this story. He's a he's a watercolorist, a painter, mm-hmm. and uh, he had this story of when he was a kid and he was you know actively creating 
work. He was just something that he really loved. And at some point, a teacher spoke to his parent and said that he was doing something wrong. I don't mm. know. I can't remember exactly what it was, whether he was like painting outside of the lines. It was something really right, inane, right. very stupid. And that impacted him so much that he completely stopped painting. And it wasn't really? until, yeah. And it wasn't until wow. his probably early 50s that he returned to it. Mm. And, and it really gave me a, a lot of thought about, you know, when we're kids, we just start creating. You know, we start painting, we start drawing. Some people start writing poetry, you know, there's any variety of ways and there's no, there's no burden about it. It just becomes just something that you do just naturally. And at some point, uh, it gets burdened with a certain level of expectation, Sure, you know, in terms of how it gets received, whether it's good or bad, whether it's really quote unquote productive or a waste of time. Sure. You get saddled with judgment. Right. And as you get, as you start getting older and all of a sudden you're in junior high school and high school, it becomes um, sort of a practical consideration. Oh, that's nice, but you know, you can't make a living from that. And that the only validity that comes to being creative is if you can earn money from it. And it transforms, it it gets transformed from this thing that just is an expression of creativity and joy and turns it into something that you can only justify is if you are a savant, unless you are exceptionally talented or you exhibit the, the promise of being able to earn money from it. Sure. And if you don't accomplish either, why are you doing it? Why are you wasting your time? Right. And it, well, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think there's also an expectation in a lot of cases that because I like doing this, I should be able to earn a living from it. Because I like taking pictures, I should be able to pay, get paid enough to, for that to be my job. And, and that's not always the case. In fact, with photography, it's becoming less and less the case. Uh, so I think that's the other side of that is, is yes, it's valued by how much money, uh, in, in a lot of cases, it's valued by how much money you can earn doing it. But there are also a ton of artists or, or you know, writers or filmmakers or YouTubers, which if you can define that, you're a better man than I, because I, I still don't quite understand when somebody says I'm a YouTuber, what that skill set entails. But the expectation is that we will get paid for it. And I don't know if that's healthy either. Yeah, I think that that, that whole idea should just be thrown out the window. Mm-hmm. I think for most of the people that we speak to who listen to our shows or listen to the work that we write, I think that there's a very small percentage of people for whom that's the asp- the real aspiration, right? Mm-hmm. That they want to make a living as a creative. I think for the great majority of people, they just want to be able to be creative and have an outlet and and have a means by which they can share the work and find a community of like-minded creative people where it's not burdened by all the baggage of, you know, their work or the demands of of family, that it becomes just a a personal expression of joy and life and being able to express something about themselves and their experience in one way or another. Because ultimately, I think that is the the ultimate satisfaction that can come from work, whether or not you get paid a dime for it. Because if you're doing it with the expectation that somehow you're going to be financially compensated for it, you're in the wrong business. Yes. I think that's 
true, but it's also it's it's hard to fight against that. I mean, even in, in, in let's take just the arena of podcasting. For some, podcasting has exploded and become a very lucrative endeavor in addition to being a creative outlet. And 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 that to a certain extent influences those people who are getting into podcasting because they see that as a potential outcome. But the reality is it's not often the outcome. It's not often uh, not everyone's going to be Marin. Not everyone's going to be, you know, Gimlet Media or uh, This American Life or any of these giant shows that are out there. Uh, Rogan. Many of us, most of us are going to be somewhere in that mix. And if, if we did this with the hope of being able to support ourselves doing just this, I think there's a rude awakening that happens pretty quickly. Can some people make money from it? Sure. But it's tougher and tougher, just like anything else, because there, there's only, there are only so many ears that we are all competing for, that we are all sort of putting out our labors of love in hopes that it will find an audience, but there's only so much to go around. And I think that's difficult at best. Did you read that article in the New York Times, I think it was about a week and a half ago, called How We Hit, Have We Hit Peak Podcast? Yes, I okay. did. Yeah. So, and though that, that, I have some issues with that article, but nevertheless. <laughs> As do I. <laughs> but nevertheless, the, 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 you know, what you just spoke to has, is reflected in a good part of that, in that article and what you just said in terms of people getting into podcasting because they see it as a financial opportunity. They see people like Rogan and Marin and all those other people who are, mm-hmm. you know, becoming celebrities in, in their own right and they're earning money and they're able to do it sort of full time and so on and so forth. And, and the article made the point that you know there are a lot of uh, of all the I think it's a seven to eight hundred thousand podcasts that s- exist right now. Isn't probably that incredible? More, right? Isn't that incredible? It's amazing. Wow. Right? Yeah. And but the great majority had not published a recent podcast, and I think I think it was three to six months, mm-hmm. which Something was like that. yeah, which was reflective of the fact that you know some of these podcasts have just sort of though they are registered on Spotify and iTunes are no longer active. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of the, the, the point, as with blogging, was that there was a, a, an interest that somehow po- blogging then and podcasting now was going to be an opportunity to make a name for yourself and to create a career because everyone was doing it. It's so easy to get into. Right. right. You just get a mic or you just get your phone, you, and you upload and all of a sudden you have the listeners and the and the ad revenue starts rolling in. Right. And these people, <laughs> you know, and, and they start putting out podcasts and then they see the numbers and it's four, twelve, right. right, fifteen. And after four episodes, they kind of like, I'm not nothing's happening. And right. this is so much work. And then they just sort of give up, right? And I think that's kind of reflective of, of practically any sort of creative outlet, you know, especially in photography, because God knows how many people have bought, you know, ten thousand dollars worth of equipment, and six months later, it's sitting in a closet, right? Right? Because suddenly they realize, oh my God, this is so much work. And I right. think that the reason why you're choosing to do anything creative is uh, as a question you have to ask yourself and be willing to be very honest about why. Mm-hmm. If it's about you know fame, money, thinking about it, it's your going to be from your escape from your mundane ordinary life, any of those things, I think it's really hard to be able to sustain the 
the momentum that you're going to need to move through that phase where you don't know what the hell you're doing. Right. To right. discover who you are as as an artist and to develop the skill set where you can stop merely mimicking the people that you admire but start to discover what your own voice is. And that takes work and it takes time. And in, in the case of podcasting, if you're reliant on an audience to be able to do that, it's, it's going to take a while. And it's going to take uh, work beyond simply you, simply, uh, of simply you talking into a mic and uploading a show. Because God knows, for me, it took a long time. Right. And I've been in this for 13 and a half years, going on 14. I remember those early days when those numbers yeah. were negligible. But yeah. I kept doing it because I enjoyed doing it. It was fun. I yeah. enjoyed talking to these people. And the same thing applies to photography for me. Sure. I enjoyed doing it. And well, and you, you've, you've built a, a, almost a singular body of work in terms of the, the, the depth and breadth of photographers that you've spoken to over the past 13 years. I don't, I don't know that there is anybody out there who has gone as deep or as wide as you have. And you can still hear it in your voice, which I'm, I'm grateful for. We talked about it when you were in DC, that there is still so much joy in, in having those conversations and I think that's a healthy way to look at it in terms of the money or, or if there's ad revenue or if there's sponsorship or wh whatever it is, that almost needs to be a byproduct. In fact, not almost. I think it does need to be a byproduct. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're playing to the sort of fickle whims of an audience rather than where you want to go as the driver of that show. Yeah, how about you? I mean, you, you, you know, you, you've been doing podcasts. You're a painter. Yeah. Um, you... You know, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I think you play music as well. I have paint. Uh. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. I I really do love the conversations, and I think you know, like a few weeks ago, eh, probably a little over a month ago now, I dove back into Studs Terkel, reading, working, and, yeah. and listening to his radio archives again. And there is something in there that I, that resonates very deeply with me every time that I jump back in. And that is the, the sort of reassurance that everyone has an interesting story. It doesn't matter what you do for a living or where you were born or what your religion is or whether you're black or white or, or gay or straight. It doesn't matter. There is an interesting story out there somewhere. And I think I have, I've been focusing on the stories of, of creatives, and I, I really don't like that term. I wish we could come up with a, with a different term, because I think it, 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 almost, it feels like it almost sets up a hierarchy, like there are the creatives and then there are the other people. And I, I, don't, yeah. mm -hmm. I, I don't really like that. But I've, I've spent, like you, I've spent a lot of years talking to artists, photographers, musicians, etc. But the more I just to have conversations with people I happen to run into, the more I enjoy that and the more that is acting as fuel to perpetuate me or to propel me rather toward the next one. Last week we were up in New Hampshire and, and there's a little candy store up there called Nelson's and the, the, the owner, Doug Nelson, he's a candy maker. His father was a candy maker. His grandfather was a candy maker and a baker. And if you think he is anything other than an artist, you're crazy. 
there's there there is art there there's craft there there's dedication there there is there is process there is creativity but in in many circles he would not be included in when we're talking about creatives, he wouldn't be included because that's more of a, of a trade. Mm-hmm. And I'm, the more people I talk to, the more I see that, that there's creativity everywhere. There's creativity in how, uh, we all approach our lives and jobs and passions and endeavors. And that's where I want to go. I don't want to limit myself to only those people who use a camera or a paintbrush or play the saxophone. You know, I, I do, it's one of the things that I really do love about Turkle's archive is it didn't seem like he had any blinders or restrictions around who he spoke to. He just wanted to talk to people. Yeah. And I think there's something there that, that really is clicking with me louder and louder. I loved his just sincere curiosity about people. And I think 100%. That's really, that is really what drove all his conversations. Mm-hmm. And I loved he- hearing him on tape. When he was talking to people, yeah, you, you, yeah great delivery, man. You you could you could hear that he was listening mm-hmm. and that he cared, yeah. And that and that's one of the reasons I love him as as a person, as a human being, but also just as an interviewer. Yeah, you know that that sincere passion for people, which I I hope that I'm getting across. In, I think you in are our own conversations. Yeah, I think you are. I mean, and and there we grew up with a as a Californian. You, you'll know <laughs> that there were. Did you ever used to watch California Gold? On oh PBS? yeah, I do. yeah. Yeah, Gil Hauser was another fantastic interviewer from the standpoint that you could tell that he was genuinely interested. He was genuinely fascinated. He was genuinely, if he was there to talk to you, he was all in. And there was no artifice there. There was no sort of pandering. He, he was in it. And uh, he's another one who I've been kind of going back to and, and watching his California gold episodes and watching meeting and trying to learn, trying to glean a little bit of insight into how he was able to set people at ease so quickly how he was able to be such an interested, endearing human being so that the people that he spoke to didn't feel threatened, didn't feel exploited, didn't feel like they were being used as a prop. They felt genuinely listened to and genuinely interesting to him. I have a brief aside about you. Mm-hmm. 23 years ago, they reopened the Angels Flight. It's a rail car sure. here in Los Angeles, right across mm-hmm. from the uh, Central Market. And it leads up to up a hill to a place called Bunker Hill, which used to be residential, but now it's like uh, office space, museums, and so on and so forth. At some point, it had been dismantled and put into storage. And after years and years and years of just sitting in a warehouse, um, it was finally reestablished a couple of blocks south of where it originally was located. And they had, you know, a big opening ceremony. I think it was on a Thursday or Friday. And on Saturday, they opened it to the public. And me and Cynthia, I think it was only two years after we got married, were there. And we got interviewed by Huell Hauser. Did you really? Yeah. And No kidding. I never saw the episode. So people would say, hey, I saw you on KCET. I saw you on public radio. Right. And last week, my brother found the video on YouTube and sent it to me. Shut up. And Oh, you have to send it to me. Oh, and it was like, it had been 23 years. You know, we'd only been married about two years. And I was just like, wow. oh my God, look at us. Just wow. no nothings. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God. What a but, treat though. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's 
that's really nice. But I never did meet him. I always wanted to. Yeah, he's, he just he's, seemed he's, like such a great guy. He exactly what he was on camera. He was in in, in real life. Yeah, and, and you know, you know, he's a good example because you know he, for people who don't know, he created that show. He created yeah. that job for himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he he they did not give it to him. He just said, "Hey, I want to do this. This is the show," and he started it, and he had complete ownership of the show. And I think Cynthia was asking, "Well, why didn't he go bigger?" It's like, you know, if he had gone bigger and gone into like a network or something like that, he would have had to have started giving up control. Sure, you know, and had to start to accommodate, you know, the demands of a bigger market and all that other stuff. But with the way it was. He was free to just explore what he wanted to explore, and he was just having a wonderful, wonderful time discovering all these wonderful places in California. It was just remarkable. Yeah, um, and but, always happy, seemingly. Yeah. You know, it, it, at least at least when we saw him on camera, there was there was never a bad day. There was there was just something endearing about him and he had that that kind of that sort of lazy cadence that southern boy cadence of mm-hmm. of of how he spoke and it was just so warm and and welcoming and you could see people just open up to him immediately it was really really terrific to watch so the idea behind this this conversation was this idea of what what does it take for people to give themselves permission to do whatever they're they're sort of interested in and i think that i think that really is sort of the key mm-hmm. in terms of people who are struggling, even with, you know, the fear that you mentioned before in terms of can I, should I, so on and so forth. And I think the only thing that unlocks the door is people giving themselves permission to go ahead and explore it in this way. Right. And not that those anxieties, moments of self-doubt, insecurity are going to disappear. They're not. But to get in the foot in the door, it's just giving yourself permission to just take that first step. And I know how difficult that can be because I, I, I find that with my fiction writing, I find it very hard, if not near impossible, to give myself permission to explore in that way that I don't have an issue with when it comes to my photography and podcasting. But I'm curious to hear from you in terms of um, your experience in all the variety of creative you know, areas that you've been. You know, what has it taken for you to give yourself permission to do the things that you find you enjoy doing? Well, it's interesting. You you mentioned you know how when we're children, there there is just the moment. There is just the process. I want to make this. I want to make a robot out of toilet paper tubes, or I I, I want to draw pictures, or I want to paint. And I don't have any brushes, but I do have fingers, and I'll use those. And and there isn't there isn't any thought or care given to how the thing is going to turn out, or how it's going to be received by an audience other than maybe mom or dad who by and large probably have a history of loving everything that they've produced so there's a a freedom there to do whatever they want to do because there 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 won't be judgment there won't be any sort of negative energy associated with that right right um and i think that we lose that and you know to to the point about your story about the watercolorist this is wrong you're doing it wrong so i'm not going to paint ever again and you know I, I know of a few people for whom a similar story unfolded they were told by friends family members instructors well you're never going to be this or this is you're doing this completely wrong and they stopped whatever that thing was despite the fact that it brought them joy despite the fact that it brought them 
excitement and it made them uh, maybe look at the world a little differently. But but because someone had the audacity to say this is wrong or this is not good, whatever good means. I mean, you know, I had a great conversation with David Dushman about good. And, and one of the things that he brought up is by what measure are we ascribing this notion of good especially when it comes to photography is sharpness does that mean it's a good photo if it's sharp or if if there are bright colors does that mean it's good or if there are you know leading lines or you adhere to rule of thirds or you know whatever it is there are so many things that can that cannot be good and yet the photos are still so compelling that you can't look away so what exactly are we talking about when when we when we start sort of taking the good and making that the linchpin that 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 everything has to be hung on and i think i'm i'm no different than that i'm i'm just as guilty of that as as anyone else i'm i'm afraid that my work is not good it's not compelling it's not uh insightful it's you know it's 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 going to be ignored I would rather have someone, you know, write me an email about how much they hate something I'm producing than just to have it go unnoticed or ignored. Because then at least you took the time to think about it and and have an emotional reaction, positive or negative. At least there was a reaction. And that, I think, is better than apathy. So, but how do you get past that concern with the outcome? Because that's basically what it is. <laughs> I don't, Ibarian. But, but no, but you, no, I, I understand that the feelings don't go away, but you still yeah. produce the work. Yeah. You still because make Because I love the process. I love the process. I am happiest. I am happiest bar none. I am happiest when my hands are in motion, whether I'm working with paint or or writing something with a pen or pencil. You remember pens or pencils, don't you, kids? Oh. <laughs> Paper, that thing. Does that have something to do with a tablet? <laughs> That's right. It's a, it's a stylus on oh, your iPad okay. Pro. You know, I love my hands in motion. I, it, you know, Adrian always jokes that if she comes home from work and I'm covered in paint, she knows I had a good day. And there's some truth to that because it's it's me letting go of the fear of how is this going to be received or it's not going to be good, whatever that means, and doing it anyway. Yeah. The day, doing it anyway. The day that I know I'm going to have an interview, I get so excited. I'm nervous. I do too. But man, yeah, this I'm is terrifying. Oh God, I'm going to get a chance to talk with somebody today. Yeah. I so, I mean, I'm just like, especially when I get to do it here at the studio, you know? Yeah. I'm just, okay, all right. I'm going to get a chance to talk with somebody. And it's just like, and I feel uh, that same way when I get out to, to shoot. You know, that, that whatever chorus of idiots that are in my head that are trying to, you know, what a great rise, term. rise, you know, get my gander up about, oh, you know, all that BS that's in my head. Yeah. The anticipation, the excitement of what's po- what could happen sure. is, gets me there. Sure. But when it comes to my writing, it seems like, oh my God, they are, they, it just seems like they get louder and more abundant. Mm. And it's the voices, the chorus. Oh my God. And I think, and for me, I think that for me, the process of writing requires a certain level of honesty and intimacy that I'm reluctant to surrender to. That I, why do you think that is? I think it's just because me coming up, I learned that me opening myself up 
to that extent expose me to ridicule and rejection and humiliation. So to some degree, I can, especially with the podcasting, I have a certain level of control. Right. And with photography, even though it is my personal vision, there is still a certain distance. But when it comes to word on the page, when it is an honest expression of feelings, not necessarily that I'm doing nonfiction, even when I'm doing just fiction, where mm-hmm. I'm really having to sort of tap into my own uniqueness to be able to express whatever I'm on the page, uh, it scares me. And so in the past... When did it change for you? It hasn't. Because it, it couldn't have always been like that, could it? Well, no, it has always been that way. Because what, really? what happened is I became adept at being a pretty good wordsmith where mm-hmm. I could evoke a reaction from someone without necessarily being completely genuine. Mm. Does that make sense? Sure. So because I was reading a lot of other people's work, and I was an avid reader, I kind of knew basically the machinations of being able to write a story or something like that where it could result in people having an enjoyable reading experience, but not necessarily the kind of visceral one that... I've experienced when I'm reading other people's work. Mm. And I think that's the obstacle that stands between me and putting the words on the page. And I think to some extent, the people who find it difficult to explore any sort of art, I, I suspect that it's, it's related to something similar to that. that. That regardless of the art form, that they see it as an extension of themselves. And if they have been experience some sort of emotional trauma as a result of expressing their 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 selves themselves mm-hmm. in the work that the process of doing that in an art form becomes that much more difficult or impossible sure but that's just speaking what, from my experience that, that that's the only sense i can make of it what came first for you i'm sure we've talked about this before but what came first for you the photography or the writing the writing i think yeah i remember so was, writing stories I remember writing stories as a kid, mm-hmm. and you, I, I don't know if they had it by the time you were in school, but they used to have these uh, basically what looked like recycled paper. And the top half would be blank, and then below it, there would be where you could write. There would be mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. solid lines and like a dash between right, right, those. in the middle. Yeah. Right, yeah. so you could practice your, your ability to be able to write. So I would sure. draw a picture, and then I would write a story underneath it. And one of the experiences that I had is that I had one of those that I gave to my dad. And I remember going to his job and he was a pressman at a print shop and it was up on his machine. And I was so Mm. proud of it. And I remember, I don't know how long afterwards I came by and it had been taken down. And I just didn't have the means to ask what happened to it. I but I, I internalized it, and I think the way I internalized it is, why isn't it good enough to keep hanging up? Wow. I, and how old were you? What was, when was oh, this? Oh, this was probably six, six years old. Really? Seven years old. And, and already feeling, being able to articulate that somehow I wasn't good enough. Right. Wow. Yeah. And I think there were wow. other things happening in my life that, that sort of reinforced that idea. Mm-hmm. And, and did, did you ever see it again? Was did it ever appear anywhere no, else? No, I kind of looked no. at it, but never asked my dad directly what it was. And it may have been simply that his boss told him he had to take it down, or I don't know mm-hmm. what it was. You know, and it certainly wasn't that it wasn't good enough because my father put it up there in the first place. Sure, you know. But 
as a kid, you're always trying to, when something happens to you that's painful and it's not a really clear explanation, your go-to is to assume that you did something, right? Because the <laughs> yeah, world, the world revolves around you. So if absolutely. something bad happens, it's I mean, you, your fault. It's your responsibility. Yes. W- welcome to, you know, why did mom and dad get a divorce? Well, because obviously it was something that I did. Mm-hmm. I'm still here. Mom's still here. He's not. So it had to be one of us. <laughs> so, you know, and mom's great. So it must have been me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Isn't that strange? Man, the numbers we do to ourselves. Yeah, and the photography came pretty soon after. I mean, I was always picking up my, wanting to pick up my dad's camera. And so, but you know. Was uh, it a reaction in some way, like a direct reaction to the stuff that was going on with your writing? Uh, no, hmm. no. It was just, it just like, it looked, I just like the look of my dad's camera. Mm-hmm. Especially when they got the Polaroid. And I would just grab it and I would just like, you know. Eventually my dad saw I wasn't going to stop asking to use it. So. <laughs> <laughs> fine. Fine, fine. <laughs> and was there, was there a proficiency that you were able to experience in your own work, the photography I'm talking about now, that you didn't feel with the writing? I mean, what, what made them different for you? Uh, I think that with the photography, I was able to elicit a reaction from someone else based on how I observed the world. Because I would remember mm. I was at the boys club, I would take pictures, I would go up in the lab, I would make prints, and then I'd come downstairs and I would show them to people. And they were like, wow. And I would get that reaction from people immediately. Wow. And it was like, it was like wow. The way and it was that a I polar see, opposite of what you got from the writing, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, because I never, I, other than being in a class, like in maybe college, mm-hmm. where I was writing, where I would get favorable responses to it, I didn't really experience that as much in elementary, middle school, high school. I mean, I did a little poetry, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it, and yeah. some of it got into like the yearbook on my senior year and stuff like that, but... Um, it wasn't work that I was, I, I wasn't putting out, out work in which I got any sort of reinforcement in terms of feedback, but I did get it from photography. But mm-hmm. I was always fascinated with stories and always aspired to be able to do that. But I think that my sort of lingering fears about rejection and not being good enough prevented me from doing it. And it just re- reinformed that, that negative feedback. Sure. So it just became a loop. So while photography was not as difficult for me to practice and to put out there, writing has and continues to be uh, more of a, a, a challenge. Not so much when I'm writing nonfiction, when I'm writing articles and stuff like that. I just like, it just, other than, you know, looking at that blank page every time I start something, um, once I'm able to begin, I can see it through to the end. But when mm-hmm. it comes to the fiction, I just, I, I can't sustain the momentum just because the anxiety and the fear and just uh, doesn't allow me to see it through. Even though I intellectually, I know that the first draft is going to be crap. Right. Even though I know that that is part and parcel of the process, that it's only through the revisions that I'm able, I'm ever going to be able to pull something of value from it. Right. But if I'm not able to push through it to even get through a first draft, I'm just, it's just, it, it becomes m- m- more an anxious process for me than a joyful one. Right. Even though when I'm in the midst of writing something and I've been working on it for days or weeks or something like that, I mean, I'm in bed thinking of where I'm going to take the story and there's a joy of just me lying in the bed thinking about, oh, this and this, you right. know? And, oh, oh, you know, when I'm in that place, it's just wonderful. But it, it's so interesting to me then that you, 
that you made that turn into podcasting because on some level, every show we do is a first draft. Right? First and last. I mean, we, yeah. I mean, there, there are no revisions. There, There is mm-hmm. no going. I mean, I, I, I suppose you could reach back out and go, hey, when we've done that too when shows have, have we've either lost the recording or, you know, it just didn't go. You can go back in, but it, by and large, these shows that we do, they're, they're one take shows. Mm-hmm. So how, I guess, how is, you're blowing my mind here. How, how is that more comfortable for you than writing? And you're doing it in front of an audience. It's, it's an audience of one or maybe two, mm-hmm. but it's not just you. Now you're, you're having to do this, this, this first and only draft in real time in front of somebody else. So why is that more comfortable for you and why are you so good at it <laughs> that's the other part of well, it well that's part of my answer not to be egotistical is i'm good at it yeah and i know that i'm good at it yeah and so i have a degree of confidence that i feel like even a less than stellar show will still be good enough yeah so so a, a, a seven or an eight from you is still probably a nine or ten from somebody else in that respect uh, not to not to mean? not to compare or judge but yeah. You know what I mean? No, I would say a seven or eight from me would compare to yeah, yeah. That's that's the right analogy. Yeah, because I listen, I listen to other. I mean, other you shows. can have an eleven or a twelve from somebody else if you really want to. I was trying to no, be generous. No, I, 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 man, I'm, I'm, I'm numerically dyslexic, so it takes me a minute when numbers are involved. Right, right, right. Um, but no, I listen to a lot of not only podcasts but a lot of interviewers mm-hmm. and. And I know the one thing that I have on the great majority of people out there who interview is that one, I listen and I care. Sure. Right? That's those two are things that I know I have in spades. And because the great majority of people don't have that, I know that I'm assured that I will have a pretty decent conversation with whoever I sit down and talk with. And because I'm choosing them and because I have an, and because I'm choosing them because there's some aspect about their work or their career that I'm sincerely curious about, I feel like I've front loaded it to the degree that barring some sort of technical snafu, I'm going to have a decent hour of of conversation. And I think when it comes to the writing, the fact that I don't have complete confidence in my skill set contributes to my inability to put it into practice. Mm -hmm. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, all wanting to garner your attention. So I really appreciate that you invite me to be part of your life when you are at work, commuting, or working out at the gym. It's something I do not take for granted. And when you choose to support the show with your contributions, you provide me and the team the means to to have the time to research and schedule interviews, pay for the half dozen software titles and services we use to bring you hundreds of hours of free content. So when you contribute $5 or more a month, you are helping us to have the time and the resources to do what we do and share it with people like you all over the world. If you haven't already, please visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame and become a Patreon supporter. You can also support the show by writing a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And even better, if you really enjoy an episode, spread the word via an email to a friend, a post on your social networks, or old school word of mouth. 
all of it is important and invaluable. So thank you for your support and being a member of the TCF community. Well, let's get back to you, brother, because I'm not okay, paying yeah, you for sure. this counseling session. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always trying to turn it around, I know, man. I know. <laughs> yeah, but uh, what, what, I'm sorry. Where were we going to go? What, what, what well, are I want to hear from what, you what, in terms of in terms of you know I'm talking about where I'm where I'm struggling with, and I kind of asked you before in terms of how do you give yourself permission to do it? And you talked about the fact that it's just it's joy you know a joyous thing, but you know we're, the people who you question about their fear i think many of them either are unable to really begin or if they are doing it they're sort of burdened with questions of whether or not they're good enough and that ends up informing how they do things and whether they put the work out there you know it just becomes sort of this toxic stew Mm -hmm. and how you know how do you if not yourself how have you witnessed other people because you've talked to plenty of people and you did this show sure. with Bill for you know a number of years where you know this sort of the germ of this conversation you guys had does you know discussed numerous times sure so you know what what's sort of the the solution because people say well if you want to write you just write if you want to take pictures just take pictures but if it were that simple for everybody to do it everybody be doing it right and while that and, and there's a lot of truth to that but and for some it is yeah you know, I'm not one of those people. And I, I think maybe that's why I keep asking these kinds of questions and why I'm so interested in, in the responses of other people is because I'm I'm trying to sort all this stuff out for myself as well. You know, I mean, I have the reality of it is I love to paint, but my entire body of work since, so oh, let's see, 2008 is maybe 25 paintings. So I'm not prolific. It takes a long time for me to be happy with something. Now, uh, in terms of unfinished paintings or, or paintings that I've painted over to get to something else, well, then I'm probably in the hundreds. <laughs> but actual finished pieces, yes, while I love my hands in motion around it, they're riddled with anxiety. The process is riddled with anxiety of of whether it's going to land or whether it's going to say what I wanted it to say or thought it should say. And I think a lot of the questions that that came last week when I asked about fear is is around just that. They they are around just that. That I don't know if I'm saying anything compelling or I don't know what I want to say. How do I find out what I want to say? Mm-hmm. And I I don't have an answer for that because I'm still trying to figure that out myself. There is. Uh, there's a terrific artist that I follow. Her name is Lisa Pressman, and she is a, a really wonderful painter, works with encaustic and cold wax. And she gave some advice that I've really been trying to take and put into practice, and that is to not think about, and this, I'm sure this would apply to, to other things, but we were talking about painting, to not think about it as a finished painting, to just think about the next layer as something of interest, a layer of texture, a layer of color. Don't worry about whether or not it's going in a particular direction. I think part of any creative endeavor, whether we're talking about making pictures or writing or painting or or dance or being a musician, is building up a skill set so that you don't have to think about the skill set anymore and just letting the work go where it wants or needs to go. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that there are a lot of people out there listening with regard to photography that once you didn't have to think about the mechanics of the camera and if you shoot in fully program mode 
more power to you. That's terrific because cameras have gotten so good that if that's what you want to do, do it. Com- concentrate on composition, concentrate on subject, concentrate on what you're trying to say with that photograph and what you want us as an audience to to glean from that photograph. But if you're if th- those first few sessions of, of or longer of shooting on manual, when you have to think about the mechanics of the camera, I don't think we do our best work because we're thinking about the mechanics of of, of making. Yeah. When we can let go of that, that's where we start to get better results. And and to basically jump on that idea, I think mm-hmm. part and parcel of that is realizing that as as an artist, as a photographer, whatever whatever name you want to put on it, that you have a unique way of being of being able to create the work and making it okay to do it in the way that you do it, even though it may not be reflective of how other people do it. Sure. And that for me is an ongoing lesson Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of us learn that, oh, there's a certain way of doing it, right? There's a certain way that you use the camera. There's a certain way you're supposed to write and all all those other things. And And if you don't feel completely comfortable doing it, the assumption is that you're doing something wrong, that there's something you have to learn or unlearn in order to fit into this box of what's defined as the right approach. Okay. And for me, part of my ongoing um, liberation from the burden of such thoughts is discovering people who do things in the way that I do who are accomplished, right? Like for the podcast, I don't work from any notes. I don't have anything written down. Mm-hmm. I just do all my research and then I just have a, I just have a conversation. I just do as much as I can. And same. there's several people same. who do, do, that, do that same thing. I cannot work from written notes. I just read, look as much as I can and then jump into the conversation. But in terms of writing, the former showrunner of Doctor Who, Stephen Moffat, Mm -hmm. I read a book of his regarding his time at the show. And uh, it was the first time I'd ever read of a writer's process that was similar to mine, which was endless procrastination and waiting to the very last minute to produce the work <laughs> and, and just diving in and then just making it happen. Yeah. And, and Every paper I ever wrote in college. Right. But the thing is, for him, for him, it was like, that's where he thrived. Mm. That's when he was able to produce the work that he needed to work so that sure, sure. seeing that made and that's me the look, way you write yeah, yeah. not all, not always I mean when it comes yeah. to the books I've managed to you know because I have to I can't write a book and, and I have to schedule and sort of dedicate time to it but then this the requirement of a deadline is often essential for me yeah you can't you can't wait until the, like you Ted doesn't want to call you and you go well no, I'm, thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a page ten. Don't worry. I got a lot of coffee. He doesn't want to hear that. I got a lot of coffee. Got some amphetamines right here. I'm good. It'll be there by the end of the week. Oh, my gosh. So that, and then I read a book recently, which is called Writing into Darkness. It's a really short book, but I'm not an outliner. The way I've always written sort of fiction is an idea Mm -hmm. pops into my head, and I just start writing. Just go. Just And I just go. And I like the idea of discovering as I'm writing, as if I'm reading something and I'm making discoveries as I go along. And so you don't necessarily build uh, these sort of Tarantino-esque backstories for all your characters. You just let it evolve. Yeah. Well, I've, like. I've tried to do it and that's ended up being a roadblock 
Hmm. And then I just discovered um, the guy who does uh, that animated cartoon, that adult cartoon, something in Morty. Um, oh, Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he has a basically a sort of a, a different system modeled on the uh, Joseph Campbell, you know, the path of the hero journey of the mm-hmm. hero and he basically has a uh, sort of a simplified uh, graphic about what the path is and i've been looking at that and i go okay that seems manageable because i can't outline just like I, with an with an, with an interview for the show if i start writing down and having to do all that sh- stuff no i just want to be able to discover i just want to have a, a general sense of where i'm going because i what what makes the writing enjoyable for me when i when i was able to successfully do it in the past was that it was a constant experience of discovery mm-hmm. where i was writing not because i was trying to be an adept wordsmith not because i was enamored with my language but just because i created um, a scenario with a bunch of characters and i was just curious who are these people and what's going to happen next and so i'm trying to find the means to sort of return to that because i know that that's the way that works for me and I think that part of my burden in terms of my struggle for the longest time was feeling that that way of working was not okay. Hmm. And but that based I had on to, whose standards? Right, exactly. I would look yeah. at what other writers would do because God knows I've written, read so many things about other writers and their process and stuff like that. It was nothing reflective of, of me. And I, I want to think, well, if, if these people are successful and then doing that way, then that's the way I should be doing it. And if I'm not doing, there's something wrong with me. And then it would just reinforce that insecurity that I'm not good enough. Has the fiction gotten any easier after 13 years of podcasting and how many books have you done now? Five? Six. Six, Six, yeah. yeah. Has, Has the fiction process gotten any easier on the back of the reaction and reception to those other projects. No, because I haven't been able to return to it. Yeah. I've, I've, I was trying to commit to writing 500 words a day and it wasn't tied to any novel or short story. It was just, just write 500 words, mm-hmm. you know, and it was an exercise I was able to keep up for a couple of months, but I've sort of lapsed behind it because again, it gets burdened by that. But, you know, I think I just need to latch on to sort of an idea and go, oh, I'm curious about that enough that I will sit down on the, you know, sit down on the computer and just pound it out. And I've yet to come up with what that idea is. So I'm, that's what I'm looking for. That germ that inspires me enough to be curious enough about it to sit down and just put it on the page. And I think if I, if I find that and, and find something that gives me the joy of discovery in that sense, I mm-hmm. think I'd be able to get back, get back into it. But I think I need to take some time away from all this stuff that's on my mind and, and my life right now and to sort of just quiet, my, quiet the noise in my head for a little while so that I can see See if I can figure out what that might be. I'm I'm curious how how long has it been? Man, you're and, good and, at turning it back on me. Shit. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'll get back to me. I'm just gonna. How long has it been since there has been, since you've received that same type of negative feedback around your writing that sort of tore you out of it in the beginning? Oh man, no, I have not experienced that at all. When I was regularly writing, which you know, I was part of a writing salon and I was mm-hmm. um, providing feedback to other people. I, I, all I got was positive response. Okay. Um, all right. So that, this is my, why I asked this question. Yeah. <laughs> because we hold on to those, those little, those negative moments, those bits of negative feedback. Mm-hmm. For every one of those, it may take a hundred pieces of positive feedback to offset it. Why? Why is the negative harder, uh, easier to believe? 
why why is it why is it easier for us to discount our good our talent our ability our empathy our compassion anything that makes us see ourselves as good why is that harder to believe than somebody says well that's 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 crap because that's, i've lived you don't know with because i've lived with that narrative for more years than i've lived with the positive right that's it right Right. That I accepted it and made it part of the way that I see myself and the way that I navigate the world. So now that I know that it's BS, uh, now I have to basically build new muscle memory, mm-hmm. which only comes from producing the work, to be able to excise that. Or, or if not completely excise it, to diminish its ability to influence me. Well, and that's the irony, isn't it? That, that it, it all comes back to producing the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no getting around that. No. And, you know, my dissatisfaction with the things that I produce comes largely out of the, on the back that there are only a few of them out in the world. You know, if I had painted a thousand paintings, I'd probably be a lot better than I am now. Yeah. You know, but each one is such a chore. Each, each sort of dip back into that pool is, is fraught with anxiety because I don't know where it's going to come out. I don't know what's going to be on the other side. And I don't want to put hours, days, weeks, months into something and then look at it as an abject failure once I finally determine that it's finished. Yeah. I, I really like your work. I mean, I've seen some of the paintings Thanks. that you've posted you. on, you know, on Instagram and elsewhere. And one of the things that really kind of fascinates, fascinates me about it is that it's just not, you know, the visual aesthetics that make your work interesting. It's the fact that it's so personal, mm-hmm. you know. And I, th- you know, I mean, all good work is is about that. But I think that's one of the things that I admire when I look at your paintings is that you, you, it doesn't seem like you're very shy about expressing your attitudes and your feelings in the work, which is something that I admire of any artist that's able to do because it's one of the things that's very difficult for me to do. And you know, we're talking about this sort of earlier, you know, sort of emotional trauma that often prevents us, or at least me, from being able to to do that. So. You know what? Because you you weren't always painting. You stopped for a while. I stopped for a long time, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you ended up returning to it. So I'm I'm just sort of curious as to what took you away from it, and what did it take for you to get back to it? Well, it was I I came to the conclusion that that I wasn't any good. That I wasn't going to hang in museums and galleries. So if that was the case, then why pursue it? And that was a large part of that was on the back of my dad, who was relentless in his criticism of me pursuing anything creative, mm-hmm. was was um, very harsh and very sort of dismissive of anything creative, that artists are a dime a dozen. What are you ever going to do with that? You know, and I bought into it. I bought into it and I stopped. Uh, and And years later. I realized that he was wrong. And the irony of it all was that he turned out to be a metal artist. Uh, he turned out to take his love of, of the mechanical side of, of objects and transform that into, well, he never saw it as art. He just, because everything had to have a function. Mm-hmm. He, he would never make something just for the sake of itself. It had to serve some purpose. Uh, and it was reflected in how he sold and priced things. He wouldn't, there was no, <laughs> there was no aesthetic value to his work. He priced everything according to how much material it used and how many hours he put into making it. There was no room for art 
as it were. But it's something that he enjoyed doing, right? He loved it. Yeah, so he loved it. Do you, do you think that it was his way of being able to justify it maybe to his own parents and eventually to himself, which allowed him to be able to do it by simply denying the fact that it was art? I don't know. I mean, I think he could have done anything he wanted because he was he was the youngest of three boys and was doted on, certainly by my grandmother, his whole life. So I don't know that he could have made too many wrong moves in the eyes of my grandmother and grandfather. Why he couldn't pass on that level of freedom of self-expression and a discovery and exploration to me, well... You know, that's a $100,000 question. I yeah. have no idea. But we butt heads on that more than probably anything else in my life. And and then when I, oh gosh, when I went and just told him that my major was going to be theater, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was, I mean, you could just see the veins in his forehead just start to pulse, you know? Yeah. And there was all sorts of really sort of uh, almost dehumanizing rhetoric around that. Because he was from a different, a different time period, a different mindset. He was, he was a, 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 he was a railroad man. He was a blue collar, physical, laboring kind of man. Mm. And so to 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 say that you were going to go pursue something as ephemeral as art or the theater, he just didn't know how to respond. Did you other than you know? Go ahead. Did you return to the painting after you passed away? Or had you done it before or started or before? Um, I started again in 2007. Uh, so he was still alive. Okay. And he never, he still never understood it. But because by that time he was on his own creative path, for lack of a better word, he, he didn't understand it, but he accepted it because he, he finally saw that it was a variation of his own process. And, and because there was process in it, when I explained to him how I made these things and, and how much work there was in it, I think that allowed him to see it as work in a weird way. You know, not it was something more than just swirls of paint on a canvas, that there was there was something there was machinery involved. There was process involved. There was time involved. And, and in his mind, those things somehow gave it value that it didn't have before. I got you. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure why that is, but it, it you know, it, it changed. Uh, he still didn't understand the theater part of everything, but the, the art, and, and when I started, you know, I showed in a couple gallery spaces and, and was in a couple group shows and, and I would send him, you know, photographs or I would send him the, 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 the flyers for the shows or whatever. And I think when he saw that it wasn't just what he had determined was a pointless sort of frivolous pursuit there was some value of course his first question was always well how much did you sell them for and, and how many did you sell like it, it always came down to monetization mm -hmm. um and i think that for a, a lot of us that are trying to figure out the worth of our work that's a really hard one to figure out. That's a really hard one to, to wrap our heads around. Whether you're a photographer wondering how much to charge for a portrait session or if someone sees a, uh, one of your photographs on Instagram and they want to use it for an ad campaign and they say, well, how much do you want for you know, five years worldwide? And you go, uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know I, I just put it up there. I don't know. The monetization on both sides 
really is hard and it and it in it impedes in a lot of ways the work and the joy we get from the work yeah well we've been talking for over an hour have we really yeah oh look at that so uh, <laughs> that always happens though is it yeah it's fun i mean we could talk for a long time but i want to yeah. be respectful of people's time but um, yeah yep. well but i enjoyed this me too me too. A lot, lot more. We should do a, a, a part two and a part three and see where they go because it's, it's, it's something that it's consistent in the responses I get from people, these types of things around fear, around that concept of good, man, that, that really screws people up. Yeah. You know, I mean, does, does PewDiePie have 97 million followers on YouTube because he's good at something? I don't know. I was the first. <laughs> Love PewDiePie. <laughs> I don't know who PewDiePie is. Now you're going to have to send me a whiskey recommendation because as part of my office, I want to have a bottle of whiskey and a couple of shot glasses in here. So mm. every once in a while, I can have a shot of whiskey with somebody. You know who you want to ask about that is Dushman. He really? is a big whiskey guy. Yeah. Oh, okay. He's a he's a, a very knowledgeable whiskey. Actually, Matheson is really whiskey, whiskey conscious too, but David is is a really interesting guy when it comes to that. I don't know much. I just found, and the only reason we found this, we were at a, a liquor store and they were doing a, a tasting, uh, the 16-year-old Lagavulin that is, oh my God, it's one of the best things I've ever tasted. It's it's smoky and it's peaty, but it's not, it's not that burny kind of, yeah. you know, the aftertaste is like smoked bacon. It's it's good. Oh, uh, it's not, email him and, and um, ask him his recommendations. Yeah, ask him because he's and, and he's got a much larger sort of repertoire about this than I do. So he's he's a good guy to know for that. Okay, and and just in general, he's a good guy. All right, man. Let's talk again soon. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks to Jeffrey for sitting down with me yet again. Jeffrey has several podcasts, but the best way to listen to all his great content is to subscribe to Jeffrey Sador's Everything, which contains downloads for his shows that include process-driven, iterations, and in-between. Find out more about him and all his content by visiting jeffreysedoris.com. I also have two upcoming workshops, the first in Los Angeles in November at the Los Angeles Center of Photography and in Tokyo, Japan in December. You can find out more by visiting nobechicreatives.com for the workshop in Japan and lacp.org for the workshop in LA. And make sure to check out our YouTube channel where I offer comments on photography submitted by TCF listeners who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr poll. Check out the TCF Flickr poll and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. My latest book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. If you're interested in purchasing it, you can do so today and receive 40% off the list price when you order it from the Rocky Nook website. Use the promo code PORELLO40 at checkout to take advantage of the discount. And receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks by signing up for the Candid Frame mailing list, where I share thoughts about life, photography, and keep you updated on TCF events. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. And not all episodes may be available on your podcasting app of choice. So to download, listen, and share any and all episodes of The Candid Frame, download the TCF app for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your support, it's free. 
The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.